0: Thank you. Welcome to A hispanard. We're going to do things a little different this time, where actually I'm not going to talk about whatever's on my mind and just kind of free flow. I'm actually going to do something that I've been meaning to and wanting to do. And I apologize for anybody that knows the information that I'm going to give or is not interested, but I wanted to focus on it. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I wanted to go back in time and I want to talk about the beginning of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, why it's relevant, why it's relevant to me. I've titled and and will be moving forward as the uh, titling this as the MCU and how we got here, both the good and the bad. And I don't know whether you would agree with me or not, but I feel like currently there is a lot of bad And just doing research, looking into the history of how things started, I think we can map out pretty convincingly why things are the way that they are currently and why things were the way that they were and why we fell in love with the MCU in the first place. So, for me personally, I've loved Marvel since I was a kid. I've loved it since I first came across my first comic book at a little comic book store in downtown Hollidale, which is a a city within a city, uh inside of the greater Southgate city, Southgate, California. Um, you know, one of the first issues that I ever came across, purchased, took home, devoured, was uh the X-Men and particularly the X-Men when they were disbanded and they were on the run. I didn't know who Cyclops or Jean Gray or The Beast, or Angel, or Iceman, or any of the classic X-Men were. To me, the X-Men were Wolverine, Psylocke, Storm, Colossus, um, Dazzler, Longshot. Those are the people that I fell in love with. I would go on, of course, to to find back issues, to devour every bit of information that I possibly could. And you know, that, that jump-started my love for comic books, that jump-started my love for artwork... Like I said, so Marvel has been uh, near and dear to me since I was a kid. And, you know, as we go through this and talk about the MCU, I think it's appropriate to start at the beginning with Iron Man, but even more than that, I think it's appropriate to start out at least with the comic book that inspired everything. So here we go. The Ultimates, 2002 to 2004, 13 run issue. It was a comic book limited series written by Mark Millar, and the artwork uh, was provided by Brian Hitch, who is incredible, an incredible craftsman, an incredible artist. The series introduces the titular Ultimates in the Ultimate Universe, which... At the time when this was created, the idea was that there was Marvel fatigue. Does that sound familiar? So Marvel decided to allow a a small number of creatives to go ahead and take the characters that they already had established since, you know, the fifties and sixties and do a retelling. You would end up getting Spider-Man. Captain America, Iron Man, everybody that you knew, but there would be a slight twist to them that would put them just on the borders of the regular characters. I was already a big fan of Brian Hitch. I was, uh, you know, neither here nor there when it came to Mark Millar, and I continue to, to like some of his work, not like some of his other work. He's an interesting writer. He is very bombastic, and he's somewhat controversial especially for back then I don't I don't know that his stuff would be necessarily considered controversial now it's hard to say but at the time it seemed you know pretty out there Brian Hitch described his ultimate work as widescreen cinematic composition and he at the time had expressed interest of translating his work over for the movies which he got his wish unfortunately And I say, unfortunately, you know, let me back up. One of the things about comics that is good and bad is that if you're an artist or you're a writer, usually you're a work for hire. You can do multiple jobs for multiple companies and never be stuck just working with one company and having to be sandboxed. That's the good part is that you can. As a writer or as an artist, you can do work for DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse. You can jump around and it's up to you to take as much of the workload as you possibly can to make as much money as you possibly can. If you're a a quick artist, you're going to do really well. You know, it's it can be very lucrative to do cover work and to do, uh, you know, the inside work for the for the books If you're not very fast, it can be very detrimental and I think you can uh, go hungry very quickly. Uh, Both of these gentlemen, both Brian Hitch and Mark Millar are very quick at what they do. Mark is a a prolific writer and can juggle multiple books at once. And the more popular the book, obviously the more money he makes. So, you know, that's a good thing. The bad thing is, is whatever you end up creating, it belongs to the company and you have no real stake in it, that's not always the case. Every once in a while, a writer or an artist can create a a character that is so, well, that's an original character that they made. They have a contract with the company, and they end up getting residuals every time the character is used. It's just not very common, and it's not often. The creators that are able to garner that kind of deal have, you know, end up having more stability and a much better life. Oftentimes a lot of characters become, you know, big time hits like Deadpool, for example, which was created by Rob Liefeld. It's an original character and Rob Liefeld, though he is doing extremely well in life, continues to eat and live off of Deadpool and all Deadpool related things. So that can happen, but, those opportunities did start to close up at the end of the 90s and the, and the 2000s as companies shifted uh, their position on how they saw things. And as they brought in brand new people, some of the new people did not get the same opportunities and contracts that the older heads, you know, who were in a sense grandfathered in were able to to create deals that were that beneficial to them. So, really, the Marvel Cinematic Universe begins in 2002 with Mark Millar and Brian Hitch. It's just that nobody knew it at the time. Brian Hitch would end up drawing an alternate version of Nick Fury, and he used Samuel Jackson, his likeness, unapologetically, In the books, if you go and look at these books, I mean, it is Samuel Jackson who is being drawn as Nick Fury years before Nick Fury would go ahead and make uh, before Samuel Jackson would make the jump and actually portray the character that, uh, was drawn in his likeness. So it's, it's very meta that that happened and, and pretty fascinating story. But so we start in the year 2005 after the the 13-issue run, you know, with, with the Ultimates, Marvel decides to create Marvel Studios. Marvel wanted to produce its own films rather than license them out, as they had previously done with other studios with mixed, mixed success. You know, we had seen Marvel movies long before the Cinematic Universe. We'd seen a Hulk movie, a Blade movie. We'd seen the Fantastic Four Up on screen, and for the most part, and Spider Man we can't forget Spider Man with Sony. And for the most part, these movies made money, and in fact, in some cases, they made a lot of money and they were extremely successful and they were gambles in of themselves. But none of them were connected to one another, everything was its own closed, sandboxed universe. And at the time, Only fans had this idea and wishful thinking that, man, wouldn't it be cool for Blade to meet Spider-Man, Spider-Man meet the Hulk or the three of them to get together or, you know, it's just, it was just, uh, a dream and a wish and, and, uh, one that we never thought that we would ever see. I mean, I didn't, not in my lifetime. In fact, so much so that that is not the kind of thing that I would ever dream about because I just didn't see it happening. Although I didn't know the ins and outs of a movie studio over time, I did read enough to understand that movie studios were pretty uh, litigious, very selfish, very greedy and did not like to share. So the fact that uh, a man named Kevin Feige would go on to break you know, crack the code and figure it out is pretty amazing at the time. Uh, Avi Arid back in 2005. And I hope I'm saying his name, right? Head of Marvel's, uh, film division decided to form Marvel studios. Now, Marvel, there's a whole separate story to be told there. Marvel entertainment slash Marvel comics had actually gone into bank- bankruptcy and was, you know, in the process of being bought, uh, they had licensed their characters to the four winds. And I mean, they were just in really bad shape. I'm going to have to go research that. And I can bring you that story, bring you the, uh, the woes of Marvel and how they were able to recuperate and get to the point where they now were able to form a film division and then create, Marvel Studios so like I said at the time Avi head of Marvel Films division decided to form Marvel Studios the first major independent film studio since DreamWorks Pictures which is you know pretty wild like before that there had been this large gap you know and and I can only imagine how difficult it would be to form a studio there's already so much competition going on with all the studios that already exist and they're so well established you know, it'd be a nightmare. Kevin Feige, uh, Abby's second-in-command, knew that they still own the rights to the core Avenger members, and Feige envisioned a shared universe among the Marvel characters. Marvel Studios secured funding to the tune of $525 million. The plan became to release individual f- uh, films for the core characters and finally merge them into a crossover film that we all know now as The Avengers. A.V. doubted this plan he doubted this plan would work and resigned the following year as the head of Marvel Studios I think that's a little too simplistic and 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 too much of a there's there's more to be said there Uh, A.V. has since come out after the success I mean the mass success of Marvel Studios and has really sought credit for a lot of the things that happened. Uh, So there's a lot of behind the scenes information that I will never get the chance to know. But uh, you can, you know, infer a lot just from uh, the various times that he's been interviewed and some of the things that he said concerning his time at Marvel. I think uh, if I remember correctly, he was definitely a doomsayer when it came to Marvel Studios. He did not think that doing these individual movies and then collecting them all into a super movie would work out or that there would be any interest in them. Obviously he was dead wrong. In 2007, Feige, who was 33 at the time. That is crazy. When you think about that was named studio chief and Marvel studios formed a creative committee made up of six people. This is maybe one of the most relevant things about this history uh, as we go through it, that I want to talk about, and it's something that I'm going to be coming back to as we map the Marvel Cinematic Universe and go through it, because I think this is one of the things that made, ultimately, made Marvel so successful, is that they, this committee, of dedicated people that would actually later on expand to even to include writers and directors. I think was a, an incredible move and nobody, nobody could have seen that this would work as well as it did. I, it's another thing that I need to research. Uh, I believe that Lucasfilm has a story group as well, but I mean, they're, they're not even close. It's in, in terms of success and output, Marvel far, far outdid, you know, anything that that uh, Star Wars has done to date. I think the only other parallel that you can say was very similar and they did it before Marvel would be would be Pixar. And it wasn't because Pixar formed necessarily a a creative committee. It was rather in the way that Steve Jobs set Pixar up to facilitate creativity and and that this type of success and what i mean by that is steve jobs envisioned and built a building where all of the creative heads of all the various departments and all of the writers and all of the uh, artists would come across each other daily it was it, it's actually a, a pretty famous uh story now that you can go look up. I mean, it'd be, I'd be interested in doing actually a deep historical dive in Pixar uh, as well, because I think they, there's a lot to be learned there, but, um, it was a genius move to make it so that everybody had to congregate in the same spot. And as they did that, you know, this director would see this writer and then they could, Oh, Hey, what's going on? Or, this writer would see this artist or, you know, and then they would inevitably start talking about whatever the project was. And then that would get them excited. And then boom, you know, you, you move forward with a new direction and creativity. It's something that I think a lot of companies have lost over the pandemic. Um, I know that it's something that has been talked about internally within Disney. This idea that you need other people around you particularly in the in the creative arts to take you in directions that you might not go if you're isolated working from home and i honestly i will say it depends on what artistic endeavor that you are a part of i think if you're a writer like stephen king then isolation is your best friend i think if you're a comic book artist That tends to be the same as well that you do everything, you know, by yourself and that definitely works, but it doesn't seem to work so well for people that are doing sketch comedy on a TV show or are creating film, for example, uh, whether it's animated movies or live action that collaborative, you know, people around you. Uh, seems to be the best way to move forward uh creatively. So the committee of uh this this committee of 6 people was made up of uh Louis D uh Esp- Esposito, Dan Buckley, Marvel Comics President of Publishing, Joe Quesada, Marvel's Chief Creative Officer, uh artist extraordinaire Brian Michael Bendis, writer and the architect of new stories and characters for an alternate reality within the Marvel Universe known as the Ultimate Universe. So, the Ultimate Universe started with Brian Michael Bendis, not with Mark Millar, but Mark Millar was the architect of the Ultimates, which is where they took a lot of inspiration for the Marvel Cinematic Universe Avengers. And finally, Alan Fine, Marvel's entertainment president, who also over oversaw the committee. Feige would go on to coin the term MCU or Marvel Cinematic Universe. Let's talk about 2000, 2005 and the Marvel characters that started, and the Marvel car- character that started it all, Iron Man. In November of 2005, Marvel gains the film rights for Iron Man from New Line Cinema, and Marvel would go on and cut a distribution deal with Paramount Pictures. So funny story about New Line Cinema. They let the Iron Man character go because I believe as uh, it was famously quoted that the president of New Line Cinema at the time said that he couldn't imagine or conceive of a way to make a guy in an iron suit fly. (laughs) I'm sure there's more to the story than that. But that's one of the stories that has famously been thrown around, and just you know makes me giggle. Marvel Studio, uh, Marvel Studios hires John Favreau to direct, but John ends up facing opposition from Marvel Studio when he tries to cast Robert Downey Jr. for the part of Tony Stark. Eventually, Favreau wins out, and filming begins. One of the uh, and and he gets he gets a lot of flack now. Uh, you know, a lot of people look at him as as both a cautionary tale and kind of like a uh, they they make fun of him. But uh, Terrence Howard, who played uh, Rowdy at the time of the first Iron Man movie, it's reported that he actually went to bat for Robert Downey Jr. and really fought as much as Jon Favreau to get uh, Downey in the movie, which. You know, we owe a huge debt of gratitude for the first 10 years of the MCU to Terrence Howard, as well as John Favreau, for making that happen. I, I mean, I can't imagine a, a Marvel Universe now without Robert Downey Jr. It It's insane, you know, that that uh, it almost didn't happen. A, a conscious decision was made by the studio to set the movie in California to make it different from other superhero movies that came before it. Um, they made it, uh, hold on one second. You know, there's a few exceptions here and there. Sorry. I had something that was flying over that was super loud, but there's a few exceptions like blade that doesn't take place with New York as it, as its backdrop, but so many other, you know, Marvel movies, Spider-Man, uh, fantastic four that, that is the backdrop is New York city. So they decided to use California as a backdrop for Iron Man to make it different than, you know, all those other movies and, and not, I guess, I guess not have people, uh, expect, you know, or, or to, to break expectations. The actors were free to create their own dialogue because production was focused on the story and action at the time. Stan Winton's company was brought on to create practical effect armor for the movie then in conjunction with ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, that is a division of Lucasfilm. Um, uh, w- together with the practical effects and with ILM, they would bring Iron Man the Iron Man suit to life. The film was budgeted at $140 million. It premiered in Sydney, Australia 1st on April 14th and would later be released in the States on May 2nd and would go on to gross $585 million dollars. That's one thing that I completely don't remember. I didn't know that it premiered in Sydney, Australia first, and then we got it later. So that's April, I mean, that's almost an entire month earlier that the, uh, the Kiwis get to see the movie before us. Pretty wild. So this information comes from a website called Collider. An adaptation of Iron Man had been in the works for decades at various studios in various uh, permutations. 20th Century Fox uh, version courted Tom Cruise in the late 90s. New Line Cinema enlisted Nick uh, the ne- the guy who wrote The Notebook, to direct in the mid-2000s. When that iteration fell through, the rights finally landed back with Marvel Studios and they began work from scratch. Marvel had a rough time convincing writers to take a crack at Iron Man at this time, largely because they were an an untested independent studio, which is crazy to think about Marvel studios being an independent studio, but that's actually what they would, what they were considered. And in fact, the first Iron Man movie is considered an independent film, even though it has a crazy budget, you know, which is usually when you think of an indie film, you're looking at $5 million, maybe 20 million at the most. So $140 million for an indie film is pretty hilarious. On April 28th, 2006, Marvel Studios took a big step forward by announcing that director John Favreau would be taking the helm of the project, having proved himself capable of delivering both a popular four-quadrant film in Elf, which is a great movie, and handling visual effects with Zathura, which most people didn't see, but it's actually a a sequel to uh, Jumanji. Uh, New characters, new situation, same board game. At that time, it was revealed that Favreau would help develop the screenplay with writing team of Art uh, Markham and Matt Halloway. While Marvel also announced early iterations of the film that would come to fruition, like Thor and Captain America, the ones that would not, like the ill-fated Nick Fury penned by Andrew Marlowe, who also wrote Air Force One, this is one of the things when I was looking into the into this that I didn't know about. I didn't know there was an actual Nick Fury movie that was being considered and written, you know, at the time when these movies were in post production or pre-production I should say. With Favreau in the director's chair, filming and filming due to begin in 2007, the next step was casting. Robert Downey Jr. was an early favorite of Favreau's, especially in the wake of Downey's performance in 2005's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I'm sorry to say I've still not seen. I've heard great things about the movie, but I've, it's just not something that I've ever gotten around to seeing. and I love uh, Robert Downey Jr., and, and I I really like watching him in other things besides Iron Man, so it is one that I will get to, but uh, and especially since this is a performance that you know, brought, uh, him to mind for Fabro, So something I definitely want to check out, but Fabro was met with resistance at every step at this time, at this time of Downey Jr.'s career, not only was he no longer a huge box box office draw, but his very public battle with substance abuse and subsequent jail time made him a pricey risk. I mean, the stories are kind of crazy and epic. I believe there's a story that he ends up breaking into somebody's house and sleeping on their floor. So he was definitely in a very bad uh, place around this time. The power or, you know, not at the time that Favreau goes to bat for him, but, you know, a couple of years earlier and he had not, uh, Robert Downey Jr. had not been able to shake the shadow that was still following him from those events. The powers that be had trouble justifying hanging their franchise hopes on someone like Downey. Favreau contends that after Downey Jr.'s screen test, the higher-ups had an easier time getting used to the idea of casting the actor. And when word leaked out that Downey Jr. was under consideration, fans were in intense agreement that he was perfect for the role. Indeed, Indeed, rumors have persisted that perhaps Favreau himself or someone close to him leaked news of Downey Jr.'s potential involvement in a bid to further convince producers and executives that he was the right man to play Tony Stark. Whatever the case, it did the trick. Jon Favreau said, The best and worst moments of Robert's life have been in the public eye. He had to find an inner balance and overcome obstacles that went far beyond his career. That's Tony Stark. Robert brings a depth that goes beyond a comic book character, having trouble in high school or can't get the girl. Plus, he's simply one of the best actors around. Favreau also said Downey could make Stark a likable a-hole, which is a great way to describe Stark. In Iron Man, when Tony Stark returns to the States after his ordeal in Afghanistan, he asks for a hamburger. So this is one of those little uh, uh, funny side tidbits. Instead of a hospital, when he arrives to the press conference, Obadiah Stane hands him a Burger King bag, and he happily eats its contents through to the next scene. Most people probably saw the BK bag and logo and thought it was simply product placement, but that's not the case. Robert Downey Jr. wanted to use BK for the scene because the restaurant personally means a lot to him. In an interview with the New York Daily News, Downey said he was having, he was once driving a car with... Tons of. Tons of dope, and decided to stop off for a burger. He pulled into a BK, and had an epiphany. As he explained to the Daily News, it was such a disgusting burger I ordered. I had that, and this bag, of drugs, and I thought something really bad was going to happen. Calling it a moment of clarity, Downey tossed all of his substances into the ocean and decided to get sober. Having an American cheeseburger from BK and Iron Man was his way of saying thanks to the restaurant that saved his life. How wild is that? I mean, I'm sure it could have been McDonald's or anybody else. It just happened to be Burger King, so there you go. Burger King has a place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Robert Downey Jr.'s life. One of the best new characters introduced in Iron Man is arguably... Clark Gregg, uh, Clark Gregg's uh, agent Phil Coulson. I think to me it's one of the things that makes this movie so incredible and special. Say what you will about everybody. Believe what you will about everybody. The cast from uh, Clark Gregg to uh, you know uh, Terrence Howard to Robert Downey Jr. to Fabro himself playing Happy Hogan to Scarlett Johansson, uh, being introduced as Black Widow to, uh, Pepper Potts, uh, you know, uh, her name just slipped my mind, but, uh, but she's there. I, I might be able to re- remember her in a minute. Um, anyway, it's just the cast. Oh, and, and, uh, the dude himself, Obadiah Stane, uh, it's, it's such a stacked movie and it's, it's wild to think about that. Uh, all of this comes together, not by accident. It's, it's definitely orchestrated, but who could have seen that it would, it would spawn what it did then, and that it would birth, you know, the universe that we know now it's, it's crazy. So, uh, Phil Coulson, That to me was one of my favorite characters that was introduced and was able to to live through the cinematic universe all the way up until, you know, until the Avengers and, and his, uh, his demise there. Not only did he play an essential role in the movie, but he was featured throughout MCU's phase one. He later landed the lead on Marvel's agents of shield and reprised his role once more with a bit of de-aging effects trickery. He also, uh, was shown in uh, the movie Captain Marvel as a much younger version of himself. It's safe to say Coulson is an integral part of the MCU as a whole, but he almost wasn't. Greg's role was initially planned to be much smaller, and his character was named simply Agent in the script. As filming kicked off, Greg's chemistry with the other actors on set pushed the filmmakers to throw him into more scenes. He was given a name and became the connection between Tony Stark and S.H.I.E.L.D., which was always going to happen. Still, once Craig's lines and scenes were beefed up, the connection came with some charisma and personality, which not only kept Coulson in the MCU, but also landed him in Marvel Comics as well. Greg explained to Cineblend how his character evolved during a press event for Captain Marvel. Agent Coulson was a small role. He was in two scenes, if anything, and they liked something about that Uh. Back and forth between him and Tony. They liked something about having the shield presence being there. And all of a sudden they added seven more scenes. Next thing I know Pepper Potts is going, thank you agent Coulson. And I was like, I've got a name now. This is cool. After Downey Jr. Was cast, the rest of the ensemble fell fell into place, but the film script was in flux constantly. Indeed, Originally, the villain of Iron Man was to be the Mandarin, who Feige said would be a contemporary of Tony Stark's. He was in every Iron Man 1 script until about 10 weeks before we started filming, Feige told uh, Entertainment Weekly. He was a contemporary of Tony Stark. He was younger. He was involved in business deals with Stark. Obviously, we know what happened with that. Uh, That villain was scrapped and, you know, who, who, I mean, the 10 rings still makes its presence in the first, uh, Iron Man. And there is whispers of the Mandarin, but you never actually get to see him. Obviously the person that I'm about, to, uh, or rather not obviously, but the person that I'm about to talk, uh, talk about next ends up being the, the real villain of the first movie, Jeff Bridges. And that's the name that I had forgotten. Jeff Bridges And Gwyneth Paltrow. So I just want to say both of their names now. Pepper Potts, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jeff Bridges. Obadiah Stane was supposed to be a secondary villain. But when all involved realized the Mandarin just wasn't working, they bumped Obadiah up to lead. When cameras started rolling, Favreau and Downey Jr. improvised script pages each and every day. And initially, Bridges was freaked out. He says, I like to be prepared. I like to know my lines. It turned out that many times, 10, 12, 15 times, we would show up for the day's work, not knowing what we were going to shoot. All the guys in the studio are sitting there tapping their foot, looking at their watch, and we're sitting and we're sitting in our trailer trying to figure out my line when I was sitting in my trailer trying to figure out my lines, I made a little adjustment in my head. That adjustment was, "Jeff, just relax." You're in a 200 million student film. Have fun and just relax. Which, you know, that's overblown. Obviously, the movie costs 140 million, but I totally see his point of view as someone, uh, him being someone that likes to be prepared and likes to be able to come in and and give a performance, uh, not not knowing what he's going to say next, uh, that would be pretty harrowing. In fact, Downey Jr. and Favreau were, frequently consulting with writer-director Shane Black by phone who performed uncredited script work on the film. Of course, Black would go on to co-direct or co-write and direct Iron Man 3, but that's another story for another day. Paul Bentney may have voiced Jarvis, that's right, and, I mean, so stacked, right? So crazy. May have voiced Jarvis in the Iron Man movie, but he believed his career was at an end after the first Avengers film. He said as much to his agent, but then he was cast to play Vision, and the rest is history. One of the reasons he may have thought his career was ending could have been due to his early interactions with Marvel Studios. When he was cast to voice Jarvis in Iron Man, he wasn't given a full script or a full copy of the script, and he recorded all of his lines in just two hours. "'I feel like a pirate,' he said. "'This is robbery. I walk in, I say my lines on a piece of paper,' for two hours, and then they give me a bag of money, and I leave, and I go about my day. I sort of feel guilty, because at least acting can be exhausting with long hours, but I do nothing. <laughs> Man, that's hilarious, since Jarvis is, I mean, I I can't think of Jarvis without Iron Man, and I can't think of Jarvis without Vision, like he's, he was such an integral part of the whole entire thing and such the perfect voice. Paul Bentley, just Bentley has just this incredible uh, voice and, and his performance was comical and and he was the, the straight man and very dry. And it was it was the perfect person, perfect person to play it. That's hardly a significant investment of time, so it makes sense he didn't fully appreciate his performance's his impact on the movie. Interestingly, Bentney hasn't received a full script for any of the Iron Man films. The only full script he received from the studio was one for the Avengers, which he thought to be a mistake. Marvel Studios is famously secretive about the various plot elements from its movies, so delivering complete scripts isn't common for all cast members. In addition to missing out on the script, Bentney has hasn't watched a single Iron Man film and he reportedly knows nothing about the series. (laughs) That's pretty hilarious too. While the idea of an interconnected universe of films was percolating, Iron Man wasn't necessarily created to begin an MCU. First and foremost, Marvel studios just wanted to make a good movie that proved that they could handle making their own films independently but Favreau couldn't resist throwing in a major Easter egg for the comic fans at the end of the movie. The post credit scene was a bit of a lark. I wanted to include Easter eggs that the fans would appreciate, and, with the, and we thought the idea of a post credit scene could be fun. It was something that wasn't really in the script originally, but I thought the idea of Nick Fury being Sam Jackson would be really fun, because when Nick Fury was reimagined in the Ultimate comic books, they cast him as Sam Jackson, and I thought, that that would be a really good nod to the audience. Obviously, the success of this movie went far beyond us geeks and nerds, comic book geeks and nerds. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, a lot, I can't remember where I was, which movie theater, uh, but the shock of seeing that after credits scene with Samuel Jackson, I'm sure that reverberated for everybody, for everybody, whether they knew the comics or not. The scene was shot with a skeleton crew as Feige didn't want word to slip that Samuel Jackson had been cast as Nick Fury or that Fury would even show up in the movie. And Favreau added that they selected Fury's words very carefully. We were very careful how we selected the words you're part of a bigger world now, a bigger universe, and the Avengers Initiative laid breadcrumbs for what was to come. We had the idea that we would somehow group these characters together that was part of what would happen but a lot of things had to go right for that to happen so we were really just laying out a basic mission statement of purpose to show our intent and thinking that the few people who would linger in the theater would be the ones who would appreciate it the most all previous screen screenings of the film including those for critics did not include the post credit scene so it was quite literally something made just for the fans. Word began to spread like wildfire on, on, on opening weekend that there was a post credit scene for an Iron Man, and soon, for Iron Man, and soon thereafter, Fabro, Feige, etc., were hounded with questions about leading to a possible Avengers movie. Obviously, that panned out, but you can see how, at the time, all of this was merely an idea, and those involved with making Iron Man had no clue just how massively successful the film would be, or that it would actually begin a Marvel Cinematic Universe in earnest. The I Am the Iron Man line is easily one of the most important pieces of dialogue in the MCU. It concluded the first film in the franchise, and when the third phase came to an end with Avengers Endgame, it was repeated to widespread applause. Interestingly, the line wasn't in the original script, Granted, most of the script was unwritten when shooting began, but Tony Stark was never meant to look directly into the camera and say that. When Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige heard it, he absolutely loved it. It's a fine line if you're changing something for no reason. That's one thing. But if you're changing something because you want to double down on the spirit of who the character is, that's a change we'll make. Tony Stark not reading off the card and not sticking with the fixed story, him just blurting out, I am Iron Man, that seems very much in keeping with who the character is. Feige and Favreau decided to keep the line in the film's final cut, and it went a long way in shaping the eventual outcome of the MCU's first massive saga. Robert Downey Jr. is notorious for improvising his character's actions and lines on set, and this was only one example of his doing that. Still, it's easily the most important because it perfectly encapsulates a character. It was arguably the most important single line of dialogue from throughout the first three phases of the MCU. And the way it closed out Endgame is the best way to say goodbye to this beloved character. Which is true. I mean, there's actually more connectivity uh, that I have not even really looked into, and I'm sure that by the time that we get to Endgame... As we go through this, you know, uh, walking, you know, walking and looking back, um, all the connections, all the all the Easter eggs, all the uh, important moments of the MCU, y- you'll see how well thought out and how well planned out they were, and how much, how relevant all of this is, and how important it is to what's missing currently. I mean, at the end of the day it it's it's all here. The recipe is here, and we'll talk more about the recipe as we go down uh, down the line, bolstered by positive reviews and an impressive Super Bowl spot. Iron Man opened at number one at the box office on May second two thousand eight with ninety eight point four million. It was the eleventh biggest opening weekend at the time and the second-best opening weekend for a non-sequel behind only Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. While the film would be somewhat overshadowed later that summer by Christopher Nolan's masterpiece, The Dark Knight, and Marvel Studios itself would stumble a bit with their second film of 2008, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man was a successful successful proof of concept, and fans went wild for Robert Downey Jr., and work began almost immediately to try to figure out how to quickly capitalize on the success. So an interesting side with the success of the the little after, you know, uh, the little tag at the end. They went ahead and reproduced that in the Incredible Hulk, where Tony Stark Iron Man shows up in that film at the end. And man. Uh, uh, The rest is history, as they say, because Marvel leaned into that hardcore, and boy, did it work. I mean, it would make us all excited all the time, every time this happened. And so it was with Iron Man. The Marvel Cinematic Universe was born. A side note, Stan Winston was one of the most significant special effects and creative design artists of the 20th century. And even if you don't know his name, you definitely know his work. He was instrumental in creating the designs and special effects behind the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, the T-800 in Terminator, the Predator, the dog thing from the Thing movie, Pumpkinhead, the robots and AI, artificial intelligence, universal classic bad, baddies in Monster Squad, Danny DeVito's transformation into the Penguin in Batman Returns, and so much more. The legendary special effects team artist's last film was Iron Man and it represented one of his biggest challenges. Not only did he have to create the cinematic look for the character who'd previously been either animated or illustrated, but he had to create a practical suit that offered a full range of motion, yet wasn't too heavy or difficult to get in and out of when nature called. Winston and his studio put a lot of work to create the suit, which most viewers probably thought was too realistic not to be CG. The film's executive producer, Louis De Esp- esposito summed up its creation rather well the finished mark 3 armor was the culmination of a truly collaborative effort of many talented designers technicians craftsmen and filmmakers the mark 3 suit is a life-size three-dimensional prototype of something that you've only seen in comic books until now it is the comic book character come to life which really is a testament to marvel John Favrell, Stan Winston Studio and all of the incredibly talented people in the production team that helped conceive, design and build this iconic Iron Man armor. So folks, that well, I will leave you very soon a little fun side note that I found that I knew I'd heard about but uh as I was doing research for all this uh and it came up again it, it just it tickled me. Uh, to be reminded that Emily Blunt, the beautiful, talented, uh, British, uh, Emily Blunt is one of the most, uh, well, she's one of the most talented performers around. And before things went the way they did, she was slated to take on the role of Black Widow. Unfortunately, scheduling issues made this impossible and she would have to bow. The role would eventually go to Scarlett Johansson it's wild to think about that, especially with her performance in that Tom Cruise movie. Um, what is it called? The day after tomorrow, I believe it's called. Uh, she's in phenomenal shape in that, in that movie and definitely showed that she could be a very, uh, credible, uh, action star. So I love, Scarlett Johansson and Scarlett Johansson, I mean, I have a hot toy black widow, Scarlett Johansson looking at me right now, you know, definitely my girl when it comes to the, uh, Marvel movies, but it's, it's very interesting to wonder and to think what could have been if Emily Blunt had been the one to take on the role pretty wild. But anyway, guys, thanks for listening. I hope that uh, some of that information is relevant. I know for me, as I was looking all of this up, it immediately made me want to go back and watch Iron Man 1 all over again. And I think as I go through this uh, history, uh, it is one of the things that I will do. I'll, I'll start watching the first three phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe again, and allow it to be what it was and what it's been for me, which is this comfortable warm blanket of great storytelling and great characters that were so easy to fall in love with and why am i doing this i i suppose i'll close it out with this you know we're not where we were and where we were once was excitement uncertainty uh not knowing the future uh world building you know we were along for this wild ride that we didn't even understand what what we were getting necessarily um and it was and it was mixed depending on which movie it was you know you got uh, uh captain america was w- well received but it wasn't a barn burner like uh captain america winter soldier was uh you know iron man 2 was okay but it was you know it, it had a lot of criticism to it and it wasn't like iron man 3 which was really well received the first thor movie is not something that people write home about and yet it laid the groundwork for what would eventually become the avengers and so as we go through this history and and we look you know at the ups and the downs and the struggles one of the things that I want to highlight and appreciate and say that I appreciate is that there were the, there was this dedicated group that had vision and, and had a plan and that plan, whether it was executed well or executed. Okay. You know, never at least to my estimation, in my opinion, never executed poorly. Say what you will about any of the movies. I, the first Thor movie is infinitely rewatchable to me. The The movie that's not rewatchable that I will never see again is Thor four. That's just, you know, Thor love and thunder is not my deal to me. That character story ended with Thor Ragnarok, you know, as far as the, the single movies go, but, uh, it's just, it's really made me appreciate what, a, and and this is where I'm going to be repetitive and where I apologize, but I'm going to say it now and I know that I'm going to say it over and over again. What an incredible difference it makes to have a story group, to have a dedicated number of people, whether that's six, 10, eight, four, whatever it is, who have this singular vision and are able to collectively map out. Where this story is going and where it needs to go, and how the story needs to be told. I think that is currently what James Gunn is trying to do with uh, the DC universe. I believe there is a very singular vision, and you know, uh, he announced the map uh, and and outlined where they're going. My hope is. That it's not so rigid that they can't make small adjustments over at DC Comics, the DC Universe, and that they're able to find gold in happy accidents the way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe definitely did. You know, sometimes the Marvel Cinematic Universe, sometimes they threw away some of their best villains, sometimes they... Their villains weren't as meaningful as they could have been. Uh, And sometimes they threw away other characters that, that would have been used better. But that criticism aside, phase one through three is a phenomenal achievement. And again, it is done through love, care, and, you know, detail you know looking looking at looking at the detail of things and and focusing on details and that's something that i believe is missing just big time um and i think there's a lot of reasons for that and we will get into that as we go further into the future or into the past and as we map out the marvel cinematic universe so guys Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with me. I hope that this was enjoyable. I hope that you learned something. And I hope that you uh, will share this with other people, uh, especially anybody who is a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe but is not necessarily a comic book fan. Please pass this along to them. Have them listen to it. Maybe it'll help them with uh, get some perspective on, on this incredible, achievement and endeavor that Marvel Studios uh, took upon itself. So with that, I will leave you as I always do. Again, thank you guys for being on this journey with me. Take your vitamins, drink your water, eat your vegetables, love one another. I love you all, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.